Please turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews 5, and we will read verses 11 through 14. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Father, we come to you as beggars, but we also come to you as your adopted children. You are our Father. And we ask that as we look at your word, really your letter to us, that you would help us to maintain that reality in our hearts. You've written your word so that we would know you, so that we would know how to honor you as our Father. We thank you for Christ, who is the exclusive mediator of that relationship. And we pray this morning that the result of looking at your word to us, that we would exalt you even in our hearts, in our speech, in our conduct, in our singing together, but also that we would exalt you as we leave here. We thank you for the privilege to rejoice over the baptisms that we've seen this morning, not simply because two people were baptized, but because you have baptized their hearts, their lives, by the work of the Holy Spirit. You've regenerated them, and you have shown yourself good to show the evidence of that in their hearts and their lives. But even now, we ask that you would continue to produce that evidence in our hearts and in our conduct and in our speech. As we look at your word, we would receive it as your word and not as the word of men. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we told you that the author of the book of Hebrews reveals four marks that separate the spiritual child from the spiritual adult so that we may all grow into maturity, discerning good from evil, and effectively teaching God's Word to others. So looking at this text, but not only this text, really many texts in the Bible, what you can and should conclude is that for the person who is in Christ, as he grows in his understanding of God's Word, as he grows in his own sanctification as a result of not only being in God's Word, but being taught God's Word, he is becoming equipped for the duty of helping others to do the same. Sanctification is not something that takes place in a vacuum. If legitimate sanctification is taking place in your life, it's going to have massive spillover in the lives of those with whom you spend time. And you can all attest to that if, in fact, it's true. If you look around at the people closest to you and you say, wow, we got a lot of spiritual problems here. I don't see much growth. It could be that you're not experiencing much growth yourself. And really, the writer of Hebrews, as I mentioned last week, is providing a rebuke. It's a loving rebuke, which every rebuke should be. No rebuke should be hateful or hopeless. No rebuke should do anything ultimately other than provide the sound correction and training and righteousness necessary for whatever the rebuke is focused on to be eliminated or eradicated. We talked last week about spiritual insensitivity, and that was point one. You see that in your bulletin there. If we're going to arrive at the place where we are helpful for others, and that includes all of us, if we're in Christ, if we're going to increasingly arrive at the place where we're able and, and even more willing, because we're more able, to encourage and strengthen and instruct, even rebuke and train others in righteousness, it's going to be as a result of having a proper mindset about the Word of God. The writer says about this, 
We have much to say, and yet it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So he's not pointing to the difficulty so much of the theology. He's pointing to the subpar ability, almost inability, of the listener to comprehend truth. You know, the person who rejects truth over and over and over, month after month, and then year after year. He needs to consider the possibility that he has become dull of hearing. But often what happens, as you know, because Paul warns about this, many will go to that which tickles their ears, right? They want to be told that which makes them feel better about themselves. And this is why the self-esteem model infiltrated the church. It infiltrated the false church. Let me just tell you enough from the Word of God to make you feel better about you. If I did that, you wouldn't need Christ's atoning death. If you walked out of here feeling like you were just fine, in fact, if we did that on a regular basis, then all we would do is woo people into thinking that they don't need an atoning substitutionary death. They simply need to feel better about themselves. Well, if you've been coming back here for any significant period of time, you know that's not what we do. That wouldn't be good for you. We want you to be encouraged, even as I said from the baptism waters, we want you to be strengthened by the interaction with other believers, dealing with things with truth in love, speaking the truth in love. I watched a video yesterday. It was hard for me to watch it. I almost sent it to you. The video of a man who has the, the strength and the courage and the honor to stand outside of abortion mills and try to persuade women not to go in but he's going about it all wrong. He's screaming at them. He's belittling them. He's shaming them. I actually watched him at one point where he was engaging in discussion with three women, and he was quite gracious, very gifted to explain truth in a way that would be helpful, you know, refuting false, fallacious arguments. But the approach to it, the, the effort to get people to engage in the discussion was nothing but hateful. Praise God, he's He's got the heart and the compassion and the willingness to go out there and do that. But screaming condemnation at people is no way to establish a relationship, which, by the way, is necessary to speak the truth in love and to bring a loving rebuke. And you might have found that in your seeming inability to teach the Word of God in whatever venue that God has called you to, that you get real frustrated and you just kind of lash out. And so what you've done is you've taken up an offense that's not yours. What needs to happen is you need to be further strengthened and equipped with the power of the Word of God that the Spirit uses to change people's hearts. But the spiritual insensitivity that we are pulling from the idea of dullness of hearing is reflected in this text, specifically where the writer says about this. We have much more to tell you about the order of Melchizedek. We have much more to tell you about this prototype, this foreshadowing. But your ears are stuffed up. You're not trained. You're not ready to hear that. This is what he's saying to the original recipients. And, and obviously it's what he's saying to the, the person who is in Christ today but is so focused on other things that his ability to really discern from the Word of God and through sound teaching is greatly diminished. So briefly, this matter of the order of Melchizedek, back to verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, "'You are my son, today I have begotten you.'" And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, having seemingly no earthly origin and no death. That's the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has no origin. God has no origin. Jesus is God. The Jehovah's Witness would have you think that where the Scripture speaks of him as having been begotten, that that was his origin. That is his earthly incarnate origin. But it's not his origin. 
the writer goes, uh, the writer attempts to help us understand that this order was better than the order of Aaron, but still Jesus' order, Jesus' priesthood was better than that of Melchizedek. This is a quote from Psalm 110 where David prefaces the quote with his own statement that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7 in Hebrews 5 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In verse 17 of Hebrews 7, the author says, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then he goes on to explain this sufficiently so you and I can have enough information to understand it. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Weak and useless? The Old Testament law? In terms of the ability to provide redemption? Yes, it was a picture. It spoke of that which was to come. The work of the Old Testament priest was never ultimately efficient for atonement, provided atonement in that the one who trusted in that work as a representation of what would come, it was sufficient in that way. But it was not the ultimate work of atonement. Verse 19 in Hebrews 7 goes on to say, For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Enough said? The better hope, the new covenant, the work of Christ that actually provided atonement. Arminian theology does a tremendous disservice to this doctrine. It makes the atonement insufficient unless man flips the switch, unless man really resurrects himself. See, that is the insufficiency of the old covenant. The sufficiency of the new covenant is that it actually provided atonement. And it was not dependent upon man to do anything. We draw near to God through this covenant, through this order, the order of Jesus. Verse 22 in Hebrews 7 says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Why? Because of his reverence, because of his obedience, because he grew in wisdom and stature, because he followed every command of his Father with complete fullness, with complete obedience with complete heartfelt compliance. But there are those who cannot hear. There are those who can hear but are immature. There's this distinction. We talked about that lengthily last week. Jesus tells in the form of parables things that only Christians can understand. And then the disciples, as you know, originally said, well, why do you speak in parables? And essentially he said, that's the Christian code. Do you not understand, he would say to them, and he would go on to explain the parable. But the unbeliever had no ability to comprehend the parable or the explanation. 1 Corinthians 2 says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And I think, like, like Mike talked about when he was being baptized, many of you can attest, and I could as well, you know, you first start hearing truth and it's revolting because you've been taught so much pseudo-truth. You know, things that sound a lot like truth, but they don't really hit the mark. And so you start hearing sound truth with clarity and conviction and non-apology. It's disturbing. But if you're in Christ, you receive it, and if you're not, you reject it. 
person who has spiritual insensitivity in terms of what the writer is talking about here is not the person who is utterly unable. He is much unable because he is dull of hearing because he's been fed spiritual cotton candy and he has no appetite for real deep truth. So point one was spiritual insensitivity. Point two last week, spiritual immaturity. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. The one who meanders his way through the church, particularly in a church that's truly devoted to sound teaching, but never becomes a disseminator of that truth that he hears week after week, eventually does what he can to work his way out of the teaching. He does whatever he can to keep himself busy and to avoid the worship service where that teaching is coming in such a way that it's actually producing inner conflict. He runs from it. Well, the writer says, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, he also says you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. It is as if the basic oracles of God have not had that penetrating impact on that person's heart such that he couldn't help himself to go tell others. Now do a personal assessment for a moment. How passionate are you about communicating truth to others? I mean truth. I'm not talking about catchphrases and modern evangelical falsehoods. You know, you get stuck somewhere and you're with somebody for 30 minutes, a couple hours, and you think, I need to tell this person about Jesus. And, and you default to these catchphrases that you heard some pastor use year after year after year after year. And then you're, you come here and you're challenged with whether or not those things are actually in the Bible. You know, you go home and you search your Bible and you think, i got to get ready for this. I've got to adhere to the command in 1 Peter 3 to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in me to everyone who asks. And why in the world would they ask if you're not prepared? You've got to do that with gentleness and reverence, of course. This spiritual immaturity that leads the author of the book of Hebrews to say that you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God is a desperate condition. It's a sad condition. He says you need milk not solid food. The idea here is that you can't handle solid food. Think of it. It's real simple. The person who has not been nourished on nutritional milk is, of course, not ready to handle solid food. And so he walks away saying, well, I didn't like that. I didn't like this. I don't like those things. He thinks that. He says that because he's never really been nourished unto spiritual health by drinking nutritional milk. He might have been exposed to it, but he didn't devour it. He didn't obey Peter when he says to put away malice. He's too busy allowing malice and hard-heartedness and sinful attitudes to dilute the effect of the pure milk of the word. Peter says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by which you may grow up into salvation. You see, the writer of Hebrews is not saying that pure spiritual milk is bad. <laughs> He's saying you need it because you can't handle anything more than that. Peter adds this little tag in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's another way of saying, if indeed you have experienced the goodness of God in redemption through Christ. And this is an implication that a lot of people need to think about whether or not they're even in Christ. The oracles of God, last week we talked about that. I encourage you to listen to that online if you weren't here. This is where Paul talks about the difficult doctrine of God's sovereignty over evil. But it's a basic doctrine. It's a basic truth. Why is it so difficult for folks to comprehend if it's so basic? Well, let me talk first about why it's so basic. God is sovereign. What happens is people will dilute the concept of sovereignty. 
and they will adhere to the idea that God is sovereign over the good things. I've even seen people pray things like or say things like, let's pray that God will be sovereign in this situation. Well, you don't have to pray that. Don't pray God be sovereign. God is sovereign. There's no denting God's sovereignty. You can't diminish God's sovereignty. That's never going to change in any way at all. What you ought to be praying is that he would enact his omnipotence. God, do this work because you are sovereign. We trust you to do that. So it's a difficult doctrine. Why? Because folks have become dull of hearing. This is really insulting to the human self-esteem that's so nurtured in so many contexts. Paul says there that no one is righteous, and that's really the, the main idea in the book of Romans. No one is righteous. And then down in verse 21, Romans 3, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Talk about insulting the Jew. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the issue. That God provides that righteousness by grace through faith to all who believe. There are no exceptions. You say, that doesn't sound like Calvinism. Then you don't understand Calvinism. I quoted Calvin last week by saying that salvation is of the Lord. That's the idea. It's of the Lord. The Lord does it. The Lord brings it about. Well, this spiritual immaturity is overcome by spiritual maturity. That sounds obvious, I know. Maturity overcomes immaturity. Point three this morning, spiritual maturity. This is the answer to spiritual immaturity. The writer says in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature. And how did the mature get that way? They weren't always mature. What moved them from immaturity to maturity? It started with a longing for maturity in light of an awareness of immaturity. There was an honest assessment of self that, by the way, was influenced by an assessment of someone else. We call that discipleship. The person who runs from discipleship will never be mature. You know, you know that guy, maybe you're that guy that thinks he's so mature, and yet he's never had an in-depth relationship with anybody that's led to spiritual assessment of his own life in light of the spiritual reality of what the Word of God actually says. A lot of times those folks will say, well, I have the gift of discernment. A lot of folks don't have the discernment to know what the gift of discernment is, and therefore they continue in their non-discernment but think they're so discerning because they're so critical of others. That's not discernment, that's just criticism. You see, they chose to put away all malice. Those who are mature, they chose to put away all malice. It's a deliberate, volitional effort to act by the power of the Spirit of God to destroy malicious intent, wanting harm to come to others such that you're even at times willing to produce it. Those who are mature... They put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, they longed for the pure spiritual milk that by it they grew up into salvation since they had tasted that the Lord is good. They cried out to the one who provided spiritual birth. They cried out to him for spiritual nourishment. They continued to do that. They were nourished on pure, nutrition-filled spiritual milk, the simple oracles of God, the easily digested truths that produce maturity. They didn't reject them, saying, well, that can't be true. If this is true, that can't be true. They received it as the Word of God, even though it seemed difficult at first, and it violated their human philosophy of life. But they saw it in Scripture. They chose to believe it. They sought discipleship. They looked for others to help them understand it. You might be thinking, I understand a lot of what I hear from the pulpit, but sometimes it's just over my head. That means you're growing. Now, let me repeat the statement. If you're saying, I understand a lot of what's coming from the pulpit, but much of it is over my head, that means you're growing. Now, if you said, I don't understand any of it, then let's talk right after the service. If you don't understand any of it, praise God, you've got the willingness to keep coming back. The Lord's producing something in you Perhaps the Father is drawing you unto the Son. 
But if you don't understand any of God's word, then you are that natural man in 1 Corinthians 2 that doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God because you cannot understand them. Praise God you're here. If you're in Christ, you love it, you drink it down, it fills you, you drink it down, you digest it, and you come back for more. You're satisfied, but not for long. You need a refill. Just like a baby, because that's what you are. The vitamin-packed nutrition you're getting is stretching your spiritual belly. The infant who's raised on watered-down milk and even eventually moves on to soda, Snickers bars, He gets fat, very unhealthy. He has no stamina for real life or anything of much value. Rather than eating a healthy diet, he looks for some substitute, something that'll just do the trick, not something nutritional, but something that'll help him lose the excess weight rather than that which will give him the energy to burn off the weight. Surely I can find that magic diet online that'll keep me from having to do any kind of exercise. See, same with a spiritual infant who's packed on all kinds of layers of theology that he drank in because he either had no spiritual parents or the ones he had were not spiritually healthy themselves. In some cases, it takes years, even decades, for a man or woman to realize that his or her vast spiritual immaturity is the result of so much spiritual food with no nutritional value. I've seen this. You've seen it. There are those who own a Bible, but rather than reading it for growth, they read it for knowledge. They want to have information. They even want to be able to refute that person at work whose theology is all whacked. But they're not reading for humility. They're not reading for sanctification. They're not reading for God's glory. They're just reading to get information so as to use that information on Facebook. Paul says knowledge puffs up. That kind of attitude will lead to so much knowledge and so little discernment. See, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The person who reads the Bible and keeps waiting for God to speak rather than acknowledging that he has spoken, he's looking for God to give him a specific application to his life rather than the singular interpretation of the Holy Spirit that applies to all lives in the same way. He's asking God, God, speak to me. He's already spoken. Oh, Lord, help me understand the application for my life. Just look to what God has said. The reason some who are not ready to teach really in any venue is because they haven't nailed down this basic principle of receiving God's word as God's word rather than some specific effort to help you become a millionaire. Years ago, as a school principal, a young man was sent to my office for sleeping in class. His father came in to his defense and read from Matthew 26, 36, which says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? If this young man's father had kept reading, he would have seen that after Jesus' third effort to rebuke the disciples for sleeping when they should have been praying, he said to them in verse 45, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. But he wanted to use this text to say, look, even the disciples slept, so it's okay if my son sleeps in class. Never mind the fact that he was supposed to be taking an exam at the time. I was befuddled, to say the least, shocked. But to his credit, this father 
When I showed him what's really going on in that passage, he acknowledged that he had misused God's word and actually began to exhibit some growth in the coming months in our church, of which the school was an evangelistic ministry. Praise God for that guy. I think that maybe no one had ever sat down with him and said, hey, the word of God is not just a tool for you to use to persuade other people to think what you want them to think, much less a tool for you to get God to do what you want him to do for you. The passage means something. It originally meant something, and that's never changed. It's not what some would call a living document. It is alive in a different sense in that it is the word of the living God. The Christian Post in April of 2016 reported that longtime televangelist and senior pastor of New Destiny Christian Center in Apopka, Florida, Paula White, offered her followers an Easter Sunday deliverance from a spiritual death since for a $1,144 resurrection seed, she says, was set by God. You wonder where in the world did she get that number? Preaching the story of Lazarus, who Jesus resurrected from the dead in John 11, 38-44, White promised believers in a video appeal that if they would sow the seed and have faith, she believed deliverance would come. I don't know what is dead. I don't know what the enemy sent death to. I don't know what decision that caused death to come upon whatever the situation you're facing, but I do know that God has sent me to bring you resurrection life to tell you that I believe that as we put our faith together before Easter Sunday on March 27th, there's going to be resurrection life in your life, White said. The grave clothes are coming off, she continued. Whatever residue of death, whatever residue is holding you back, it's coming off. White then revealed to her audience that she didn't normally request a special amount in monetary donations, but said God was very specific about the amount required for the so-called resurrection seed. There's someone that God is speaking to, to click on that donation button by minimizing the screen. And when you do, to sow $1,144. It's not often I ask very specifically, but God has instructed me, and I want you to hear. This isn't for everyone. This is for someone. That's a manipulative trick, by the way. That's to make the listener think she's not money hungry, trying to get money from everybody. No, it's just for you. But everybody in there is thinking, maybe that's me. She goes on to say, when you sow $1,144 based on John 1144, $1,144, I believe for resurrection life. For those who couldn't afford her specific request for the resurrection seed, White encouraged them to give smaller donations. You say, Paula, I just don't have that. Then sow $144. I don't have that. Sow $44. But stand on John chapter 11, verse 44, she asserted. White then promised that in return for sowing the resurrection seed, donors would receive special prayer cloths that could possibly cause special miracles, signs, and wonders. See, people who believe Paula White and other heretics like her are not drinking pure milk. They're drinking liquid sugar. And worse yet, liquid poison saturated with sugar so as to disguise the bitterness only to leave the consumer sick, unhealthy, unable to discern. She nurtures their lack of discernment by promising great experience, euphoric interaction with the sugar daddy of heaven who simply wants to make you healthy, wealthy, and fat. Years ago, I knew a young couple who told me the only thing their four-year-old daughter would eat was popcorn. Well, of course, because you gave her popcorn. She liked it. You didn't withhold it when she insisted on that rather than vegetables. They would say, but it's the only thing she'll eat. Give her access to cheese soup and not the popcorn. She'll come around. You know, if you hear a child in my home complain about what the food he's been served tastes like, it'll be the last time. It'll be the only time. First, it's a matter of ingratitude that if coddled will result in a lifelong devotion to self and demanding particular foods and rejecting others. Catering to a child's every hungry whim is to train him for a very difficult life. He will think he deserves to eat whatever he wants whenever he wants it. Children should be trained to eat what's 
genuinely good for them, even if and especially when they don't like it, for the purpose of teaching them contentment and humility. In addition, they need to be required and trained to eat well so that they will have the strength, energy, and stamina, both physically and mentally, to be maximally useful and so they won't become physically crippled due to being so overweight that they can't perform basic normal life duties. Just ask the adult who ate so poorly most of his life that he or she became partially immobile and then put in the time, the energy, the discipline, the blood, sweat, and tears to correct it. Many of you know that when you lose just 10 pounds, your stair climbing becomes a much easier task. You feel like you can fly, sort of. The same is true spiritually. Some folks who grew up in a religious environment are so weighted down with spiritual fat from being so poorly fed that their spiritual stamina is almost nil. Sitting through a one-hour sermon with a well-proportioned selection of spiritual food, well-prepared with all the proper ingredients, properly timed, and passionately and lovingly delivered is simply out of the question. It would be like asking a kid who's been raised on Doritos and Dr. Pepper if he wants a porterhouse with asparagus. He'd trade it for french fries, a Big Mac, and a synthetic chocolate shake from McDonald's. Now give that same nutritional meal to a baby like my daughter Charlotte, who's well-nourished on nutrition-packed baby milk, and she'll suck the vitamins right out of that meat and vegetables. She won't enjoy it like she enjoys the milk, but she'll, she'll get what she can out of it. Kimberly has this spoon-sized strainer thing that she feeds vegetables through to our kids. It's like shoving it through a cheese grater right into their mouths and when they're moving from the pure milk phase into solids, it's very helpful. She'll put some avocado in there, and in a few minutes, it's gone. That girl could suck an elephant through that thing if we'd let her. <laughs> but if we simply gave her sugar water, a juice box, or even fruit juice, she'd grow addicted to it and never benefit from it. While being well-nourished on spiritual milk, she shouldn't be trying to feed others. Picture it, if you will, the infants in our church, Chloe, Lily, Maverick, and Charlotte, all currently well-nourished babies sitting around shoving food into each other's mouths. <laughs> that would not go well. You'd not only have a big mess on your hands, I'm pretty sure everyone would end up still hungry. Who knows what they'd eat? I remember when Dawson was little, you know, we had this very grand idea that we were going to never really give our kids much sugar at all. And we thought that Dawson was just really obediently compliant to this. I mean, he seemed so sweet about it and kind of was. And then one time we caught him with a Reese's cup hiding behind the entertainment center. <laughs> I was shocked. Not my son. And then I helped him eat it. <laughs> For a lot of folks, coming to our church is like going through spiritual detox. It's not just the bad health from so much toxic teaching. It's the bad habits, specifically bad hermeneutics that are constantly on the lookout for what is God saying to me? Instead of looking for what God has said, which has no need of adjustment for changing times and cultures or particular circumstances, the mature are mature because they receive the word of God, not as the word of men, but as the word of God, which has its effect on believers. In some cases, actually in many cases, people sit under expository preaching for the first time and discover they had undergone a false conversion. Contrary to the words of Jesus, who said, you did not choose me, I chose you, their memory of their coming to Jesus experience says otherwise. And instead of resting in God's word alone for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, they rested in their faith and their works. Then, truly nutritional spiritual milk begins to do its work to detoxify the damning effects of salvation by the sinner's prayer, a works-based false gospel. When a baby is born, he cries out for help, and not before. When God grants spiritual birth, the spiritual infant cries out for help for the first time. To see it any other way is to say that there is no need for God to grant life to the non-living, nor for him to grant growth to the one who drinks deeply of pure spiritual milk, nor for him to grant maturity to those who eat solid meat. 
George Whitfield said, what? Get to heaven on your own strength? Why, you might as well try to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. You know, you can hear truth from multiple mature Christians, but if you keep going to porn sites, it's not the inadequacy of their giftedness or maturity or even their efforts that's the problem if you're steeped in bad theology. The residual effects of bad teaching can take years to purge if you're willing to hide your spiritual candy bars in places where you're convinced no one will see them. Spiritual deafness, dullness of hearing, what we've called spiritual insensitivity requires a change in diet, a massive change in diet. You can cheat on that diet if you want, but you'll only slow and in some cases reverse the effects of sound nutritional teaching. You want to be a teacher? Good. Good, because you should be a teacher. Every Christian should be teaching in some capacity. But spiritual insensitivity and spiritual immaturity can be the result of just one spiritual addiction. Just one spiritual addiction. You can't think you're going to be healthy if you have a great diet in every way except you reward yourself with one comfort food. The only thing I eat that's not on my diet is cookie dough ice cream. And it's the only thing that I eat. And I only eat it once a night, usually. That's the way that goes. God made your body for meat and vegetables, and he made meat and vegetables for your body. And you can go for a time without them, but you simply cannot possibly be healthy without them over the long haul. And if you're subsisting on the vacuous elements of the vegan life and your occasional comfort foods are fruit smoothies and walnut tofu, don't be surprised when people ask if you need to sit down because you don't look well. Same with biblical truth. If you're obsessed with the book of Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel, but you're still not willing to pursue personal discipleship with a passion so that you'll be equipped to teach new young believers as God brings them into our fold, then you are not ready to be a teacher because you are dull of hearing. You're obsessed with things that are not the basic principles of the oracles of God. If you're so focused on worldly finances with a sprinkling of biblical truth on it and haven't gotten into the, pat the pattern of regular joy sacrificial joyous giving to the Lord, you shouldn't be counseling others on finances. If you're so focused on finances that you can't get your mind on your own spiritual growth and commitment to good works, you have an addiction that only can be overcome with nutrition-packed discipleship. You can't compartmentalize bad eating habits, physically or spiritually. In other words, you can't keep a closet full of Twinkies and Red Vines and expect to be healthy, and you can't keep a closet full of Rick Warren and Henry Blackaby and expect to be mature. This could largely be the fault of bad teaching, false prophecy, unfaithful shepherding, but you at least know there is a difference. If you've been poorly nourished, you may not know it, but you certainly deal with the consequences of it every day of your life. Your immaturity and your insensitivity make relationships nearly impossible. You may be so badly nourished from over the years that you are convinced that all of your difficulties are someone else's fault. Not that, you're ever, not that you've ever been told that that, those words specifically, but in your immaturity, you have nestled into being a complainer. And you may not even be willing to acknowledge that you are a complainer. You might be complaining right now as you're hearing me talk about this by saying something like, how can he assume that I'm a complainer? What a jerk. I don't read minds, by the way. But that happens. But in Colossians 1, 28 to 29, Paul gives us these reverberating words that speak of his faithfulness and the energy provided by the Holy Spirit, by God himself, to do the work necessary for others to grow into maturity. Listen to what he says in Colossians 1, 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. How does Paul go about that? What does he do? Does he pop into the pulpit and wait for a word from the Lord? Wait for God to teach him something that's not in the word? No. He agonizes. He labors. 
There is no faithful pastor that does not labor and agonize in the word of God. He says in verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That is the only, friends, that is the only pattern by which spiritual maturity takes place. You cannot grow all by yourself. Sorry. The evangelical mindset that is a knee-jerk response to Roman Catholicism says, I don't need leadership. I don't need the church. I don't need authority. I don't need someone to teach me. Misuse of the words of John and 1 John. Paul in Galatians 3.23 says, Now before faith came, and we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul speaks here of the maturity that takes place in the heart of the one who abandons Judaism for Christianity. Judaism had its purpose. But it was never, in and of itself, designed or capable of producing maturity. For the Jew, Judaism was spiritual infancy. It was what they knew, but the author is telling them to leave it for the more nutritional meat that will lead to maturity. The Christian Jew I'm referring to. Spiritual maturity, you you see this idea through the concept of eating spiritual meat. But again, this is an indictment. It's a rebuke. It's a willingness, pardon the author, to be pastoral and say your problem is you can't handle meat. And the condition of your life, in terms of a practical application, is going to be there's going to be a lot of frustration when you hear sound meat taught. Praise God for your humility, many of you, maybe, maybe all of you, but certainly most of you, who for the first time heard this penetrating yet difficult truth of God's sovereignty, and you were, you were shocked, but you were stimulated. God used that to humble you, and you humbled yourself in response to that, and God uses it to faithfully shepherd you and nurture you under, unto maturity so that you would have the increasing ability to nurture others unto maturity. Point number four. Spiritual sensitivity, you probably guessed that. It's the opposite of spiritual insensitivity. Sharpened spiritual hearing. He says, for those who have powers, uh, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, those who are eating spiritual meat because they were nourished on spiritual milk, And that trained them up unto the ability to receive and even enjoy and even devour spiritual meat. Paul speaks of how this works in Philippians 1 verse 9. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now stop there for a second. The practice that results in discernment is founded in love. It's a willingness to acknowledge and even point out in the hearts and lives of those whom you love that there is spiritual insensitivity that it would be overcome by spiritual sensitivity. The the heart that is hardened to truth requires a loving correction, a loving reproof. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Nothing about self-esteem. All about the glory and praise of God, which results in great joy. Constant practicing of discernment leads to the ability and willingness to know the difference between good and evil. And I love how Spurgeon, many of you will remember this, that he has said discernment is not the ability so much to discern good from evil as it is the ability to discern good from almost good. And by the way, almost good is evil. But it's things like Mormonism that looks so much like Christianity that's almost good seemingly, but it's wicked to the core. How do you refute that? Well, my pastor says, well, it's not usually helpful to say that. 
You think through it yourself, right? You know, with good teaching, good counsel. Ryan Frederick on his website called Fierce Marriage posted these words in September of last year. Now listen closely. He titles this section, A Quick Theology of the Gospel, and in parentheses, If There Is One. If there is one. The implication is that he doesn't know the gospel, and maybe nobody does. He goes on to say, if we see the gospel as a list of to-dos that help us live a life worthy of salvation, we are overwhelmed. If you're not overwhelmed by the requirements of being good enough, your view is distorted. Either you view God as less holy than he is, or you see sin as less putrid than it is. When we see God as the perfect holy God he actually is, and not just a divine genie, we ask for things and circumstances we prefer. The chasm between him and us grows uncrossable. This all sounds good and noble. And then he says, this realization, this hopelessness in myself is exactly where the power of the gospel transforms my heart. Sounds good. My good works are forever inadequate to satisfy the requirements of salvation, Isaiah 64, 6. Sounds good. So I must rest in Christ in his work, not my own. It's my only option. Sounds great. And then he says, finally, I receive the gift. It's at that point of helplessness when we truly put our weight in the person and work of Christ and we hope he is strong enough to hold us. We finally realize our utter need and desperation for Christ to be true and his work to be enough and for his love to save us. And then maybe the most tragic of statements I may have ever read. And that is the gospel. Christ is true, his work is enough, and his love has saved us. Where's the gospel? He never gets to the gospel. He talks about the gospel. At one point he says, I'm not even sure if it can be explained. And then, lo and behold, he doesn't explain it. He finishes with these words. Okay, so how does understanding the true gospel help me love Selena? Well, Selena's his wife. He says, in every way. And that is the end of the article. It sounds good, but discernment will enable you to distinguish the difference between good and almost good, which brings you to the brink of hope and leaves you dry. Why is this a problem? Other than the fact that he indicates that he doesn't think you can know the gospel and then himself he misfires trying to explain it. On one of their online videos, they go into a rather awkward explanation of what should be the private intimacy of their own marriage, plainly violating the command from the author of the book of Hebrews to keep the marriage bed pure. Inviting others into the privacy of their own intimacy, it's vile. First Thessalonians 5.21 says, examine everything carefully. You might say, but I mean, isn't there good in the, the fierce marriage thing? Of course there is. There's a lot of good in it, just like there's a lot of good in what Joyce Meyer says. You know, a, a blind warthog finds an acorn every now and then. Broken clock is right twice a day. A lot of people say a lot of things that are good, and that's their hook. They grab you with what you think you've been longing for. Better marriage, fierce marriage. Sounds awesome. And then they lead you to what appears to be the brink of hope and drop you like a hot rock. You say, no, 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 I've been doing this, and it's good stuff. It, it helps. It works. Yeah, just like Gary Chapman's love languages work for you to get what you want by doing what your spouse wants, and you bypass the gospel, and you never really serve with a right heart attitude. John says in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of nonsense out there, and a lot of it has crept its way into pulpits. And instead of expositing the Word of God, which, by the way, takes work, a whole lot more than just downloading something from the Internet, they're providing spiritual cotton candy. People become addicted to it because it sounds great and it's fun. But they never really mature on it. 
And so what do they need? They need pure spiritual milk. That's why we have, why we have discipleship. Ephesians 4, 14, Paul says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Deep, solid teaching that nurtures an addiction, if you will, to sound truth, spiritual meat. Maybe you've been involved in our local church long enough that you are seeing massive spiritual growth. And it doesn't take long to see it in others, but you just wonder why you're not tracking. I wonder what malice or hypocrisy or whatever other thing that defies the heart of God you're hiding as spiritual candy bars somewhere where you think no one else can See it? The Lord explains here through Paul that Paul has provided that which is necessary to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, this is a deliberate effort to point out the reality that those who are growing into maturity in Christ recognize that there is an important element, there's an important, a very crucial need for every single person in the local body to be engaged passionately with his spiritual gifts toward the goal of everyone becoming mature, everyone growing up into Christ. And those who would say, yeah, that's not my thing, then friends, Christ is not your thing. And when I pray that today he would become your master. That you would subject yourself to him by recognizing that the work that he does is not between you and your Bible and the Holy Spirit sitting at home all by yourself. He will use that, but only in a supplementary way. Spiritual growth takes place via the body of Christ. He says here, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, every joint with which it is equipped. Are you a member of the body of Christ? Are you a member of the Anchor Bible Church? Then every member of the Anchor Bible Church needs you to be on your game. You say, what? It's really dependent upon me? Kind of. You say, no, 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 it's dependent upon Jesus. So we all do nothing? No, that's antinomianism, and it'll result in adultery and all kinds of things. But no... You're, you're a joint, you're a body part, you're important, crucial. <laughs> you know, when you get those gifts for your kids and you put them together the night before Christmas and you end up with extra parts, right? And you think, probably not a problem, looks fine to me. You know, and then that day the thing falls apart in your driveway. Now, granted, they add extra parts for people like you <laughs> and me. He says that together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, so it's not just a matter of doing stuff. It's a matter of working properly, which requires counsel, requires training, requires help. With no doubting, for the one who doubts, James says, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. You don't want to be that person. See, James here is talking about wisdom, really the forerunner to discernment. Discernment is sharpened wisdom. You know, knowledge is information. Wisdom is the practical ability to use knowledge, and then discernment is sharpened wisdom. Really the ability to, in the moment, help others do that which is best. He says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And maybe you're going through a train wreck right now. Maybe you've been in the midst of a slow-motion train wreck for the last 20 years. And you've done a relatively good job of persuading others to think that your life is not a train wreck. Maybe every now and then you have an interaction with someone who seems to be soft and willing and wanting to be helpful and you share a little bit. It doesn't really result in anything. You need to have your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil and you need the body of Christ for that to happen. Maybe whatever that circumstance is that's so devastating has led you to the place where you've actually sought out false doctrine something that really seemed catchy. You know, maybe I'm going to give $1,144 based on John 11:44 because Paula White is so funny, convincing, effective, or whoever. And it resulted in heartache because you sacrificed and you thought this is the key. Now it's going to happen. And this morning... You're convinced this is different. And I know I need spiritual milk. I know I need to be detoxified of the toxins and poisons that I've drunk in over the years from bad teaching, and I'm willing. And that is the heart attitude that the Lord will use to produce in you sensitivity and maturity to honor Him and to help others honor Him. Father, we rejoice in the perfection of your word and we acknowledge that for all of us, while we long to teach your word, we fall short of doing it with any measure of perfection. We pray this morning that you might encourage and strengthen us and that all of us would leave here with a greater devotion to the veracity and sufficiency of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.